Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Good evening, everyone. Um, one second here, because this is my good side. I'm going to swap these. So, see, I can, I can be an actor type, too. Um, my name's Janelle Riley. Uh, I'm the film and TV editor of Backstage, and I'm very excited to welcome you all to this SAG Foundation conversation with Alan Arkin. This is a man with one of the most impressive resumes in Hollywood, having appeared in a variety of films. I literally don't have time to list them all, but I can tell, I can name a small sampling that includes The In-Laws, Wait Until Dark, The 7% Solution, and Glengarry Glen Ross. He, of course, won an Academy Award for Little Miss Sunshine, and he is now on screens again, killing it in Argo. Please join me in welcoming Alan Arkin. Please, you're doing that because I'm old. <laughs> well, as Clint Eastwood says, if you stick around long enough, they have to give you respect. Yeah, uh, you know you're in trouble when they start calling the veteran actor. Uh, don't call me veteran. <laughs> What about iconic? Is iconic good? I don't. I don't like any of those things. <laughs> well, um, you are on screens now in Argo, and after in fifty some years in this business, you're still killing it. That's got to feel good. I, I, I'm a man. I was just thinking about it. If anybody had told me, it's like my career is having a resurgence at the age of seventy nine. It's insane. Uh, yeah. If anybody had told me that at the age of 40, I would have told them they were nuts. But uh, <laughs> here I am. Yeah. Uh, and because this is a SAG audience, actually, I'm wondering, do you remember how you got your SAG card? No. Yeah. I don't remember anything. I don't remember what I had for breakfast anymore. <laughs> and I'm loving it. I love not remembering anything. <laughs> it's one of the great joys of, of getting older. What's your line? Do you know your lines today? No, I don't. I can't. I... <laughs> I'm old. I can't remember anything. <laughs> Put the cards up. Yeah, good, okay. <laughs> well, this is going to be difficult then, because I want to go back to the beginning of your career. You can go back as far as you want. <laughs> you I just, just won't necessarily be able to cooperate <laughs> anything. <laughs> you can make it up. That's fine, too. Yeah. Um, when did you know that you wanted to be an actor? <clears throat> when I was five. Wow. And you knew you wanted it? <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember that because I, it's that in a book I wrote. It's in a book I wrote that came out last year, and I can think back to what was in the book. And uh, I have a vague reference to, oh, yeah, I said that in the book, so it must, it must be true. How do you know it's true? Well, I wrote it, so it's got to be true. <laughs> Is it true you started studying with teachers at the age Not of 10? I started studying when I was about eight, nine. And I had the opposite of a stage mother. She wanted me to be an accountant, so, but... I would drag her by the arm to, uh, to, uh, to, to acting workshops, and she'd sit outside impatiently while I was inside learning how to make faces. How did you know at such a young age that this is what you wanted to do as a career? I, I think it's like, like all of us. That, uh, well, I'll tell you, great, there's a great story. <clears throat> um, I, was, I was walking... To, I, I was... Walk, I was uh, I'd always been a fan of, of uh, I can't remember her name. Oh, it's terrible. Make someone up. On Broadway, she does musicals. She's got curly, dark, blonde hair. No, no, no. She's alive now. Mae West. Uh, uh, Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters. I always loved Bernadette Peters. There's something very uh, unselfconscious about her and very present. And it seemed very easy. And I kind of fell in love with her. And I'd never met her. And then one night I was at a party and... Uh, I met her, and I still was in love with her. I thought she was very genuine and real and, and happy. Happy, an actress who was happy. I said, my God. Uh, and, 
And the next day I was walking down Broadway with a friend of mine who's a producer. And I, I mentioned, I said, you know, you know who I met last night? He said, who? I said, I met, <laughs> I met Bernadette Peters. He said, I said, I really liked her a lot. I said, she seemed genuine and very happy. He said, not a chance. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Do you know her? He says, no. I said, well, how do you know she's not happy? He said, I'll tell you how I know. He says, because no young lady ever woke up in the morning and said, God, I feel happy. I'm going to be an actress. <laughs> I said, huh, that's, that's certainly true in my case. No, I think like everybody, I, I, don't, I don't think I, I got no attention when I was a kid. <laughs> You're making up for I, it now. No, it's true. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I didn't get any attention and... Uh, uh, I think most most of us are damaged in some way, and I was uh, I, I felt like I needed somebody to pay attention to me. And um, uh, on top of that, uh, I didn't get a sense of my father having a very specific uh, identity. So I, instead of looking up to him, I looked I, I looked for you know we, we we do what ducks do. We do exactly what ducks do. They see an, an adult that uh, uh, the first adult they see that you, you, they imitate, they hang on, they do. I wasn't able to do that because with my father because he was never home. So I did it with any, any adult male that I saw. I would just start imitating them, and so I I became uh, adept at imitating. And people say to me, "God, you're good at imitating people. You're good at accents." I said, "Every kid on the planet is good at that." Every kid on the planet can do that until a certain age when they don't really need to do it because they've established some kind of connection with a, a, a parental identity of some kind. And I said, those of us who stay good at it are, are, uh, are, uh, are um, what's the word? Uh, degenerates. <laughs> That's not the word. Uh, 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 sports, we're freaks in some way. How dare you? She I was... works here. In fairness, oh, okay. she was checking oh, okay. people in. Yeah. yeah. Do I have to tell the whole thing over again now? <laughs> yeah, we're going to start okay. from the beginning. Okay. How'd you get your SAG card? No. I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was it. And I, I just never gave up wanting to be an actor until recently. <laughs> don't say that. Okay. <laughs> were there certain actors you admired or grew up oh, watching? Oh, of course. I don't think you can do it good unless you have people that you look up to. Yeah, I, there was an endless parade of people I looked up to. <laughs> it's all in my book. I can go, I, read my book and I can go home. <laughs> uh, you want me to read from, you, from your book? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it started out with being chaplain. I, I, I remember, one of the memories I have vividly is of being about six years old and seeing the great dictator with a babysitter and beating the crap out of her at the age of five because she wouldn't let me see, sit through it a third time. So having a, well, I didn't beat the crap out of her. I just had a terrible temper tantrum, kicking and screaming on the floor of the theater because she wouldn't let me sit through it a third time. Then there was Danny Kaye, and then I got more sophisticated, and there was Louis Hayward and the Man in the Iron Mask at the age of seven or eight. And then my father started taking me to... Uh, Foreign films. I grew up learning how to read from going to foreign films. My father used to take me to a, a theater called the Thalia in New York, uh, which showed nothing but foreign films, and uh, that's how I learned to read, basically. Really? Uh, yeah, watching Russian films, French films, and stuff like that. So I had a feeling for international films before they before they became in vogue, which they seem to be all of a sudden for the first time, and and it's about time because uh, we're. By not reading subtitles, you're missing three quarters of the world's great uh, uh, screen literature. Uh, a lot, there's a lot of great stuff out there that doesn't come from Hollywood. So when you were studying at such a young age, yeah. I mean, were you, was it just plain or was there like a specific method you were learning? I don't remember. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I, I have no idea what it was. Do you remember your folk group? Do I remember my folk group? Yes. Yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, I did. I, I had an endless uh, series of hobbies that I developed in, or, in order to s sustain myself when I wasn't working, to keep myself feeling like I was alive in some way. Because I knew at a very early age, somehow I had a, 
an instinct that sitting around reading the trades was not working. I had an instinct that calling my agent 40 times a day was not working. And I had an instinct that sitting in a coffee house talking about acting 12 hours a day was not working. I knew that that was crap. Uh, but I also knew that I had to somehow keep alive creatively, so I developed a, a series of habits, uh, of uh, hobbies that sustained me. Uh, habits, hobbies. That's, addictions. Yeah, <laughs> They're both. Addictions uh, that, uh, that sustained me while I wasn't acting. But these were very successful hobbies. I mean, your folk group. A couple of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you guys had a hit song. We had a hit song early on, which, which kept me alive for about three years while I was looking for acting work and not getting any. And it was called the Terriers? The Terriers, okay. yeah. Because it was with an A. I wasn't sure if I was yeah, pronouncing no, it Yeah, no, Terriers, right. it's uh, Irish for workers. Uh, and you had like a number five hit with the Banana Boat song? Yeah. It's amazing. Big hit. And yet you wanted to... <laughs> Everything you say is funny to them. <laughs> How dare they? What do they think I am? Uh, yeah, no, that I was, we were on the a stage of the Olympia Theater. I, I thought naively that being in a folk group was my entree into the theater. Mm. I thought it was going to get me acting work, and of course it didn't. <clears throat> and I found myself on stage at the Olympia Theater in Paris with my with a sports shirt opened down halfway to my navel and the guitar strapped around my neck. And I looked, looked down at myself and I said, this is a lot of crap. I don't, don't want to do... I gotta go back to acting. And so I quit the group wow. that I said, a month and I'm out of here. I, I gotta go back to acting. And I went back to New York and starred for another two years uh, until I was about almost, uh, I guess about 28. I, didn't, I couldn't get arrested until I was 28. And that's why I had to live so long, because I had to, ca <laughs> I had to catch up. Um, and uh, I, was, I was with a small improvisational group in St. Louis. What happened? What did I do wrong? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank You're going to have to sign a release <clears throat> now. I, I was with a, uh, a, a small improv group in St. Louis for the, doing, picking up on some summer cash. And a guy came to me and said, if you ever want a job in Chicago, give me a, give me a call. And he wrote his name and number down on a little slip of paper. And I put it back in my pocket and I said, yeah, fat chance. I said, I'm not going to come and starve to death in Chicago. Uh, I, I'm going to have a big career in New York. And I went back to New York and starved for another year. And then in the state of total despair and desperation, I called this guy and I said, if the job is still open, I'll come to Chicago. And he said, yeah, we got a place for you. So I came to Chicago and got the first steady job I ever had had in my life as an actor. And for the first several months, thought I would, was going to get uh, fired because I wasn't funny. I didn't know. I didn't know. It wasn't endemic to me. I didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't naturally funny. I had, a, I had to learn a craft very, very quickly. I finally found, after a couple of months, a character that no matter what I did as that character was funny and worked. So I hung on to that character like the plague and then got comfortable enough to develop another character and developed a body of characters and, and that sustained me. And after six months, they dis the world discovered that the name of the group was Second City and it started getting national and then international attention and uh, instead of it being the end of everything, it was the beginning of everything. And, the, and I learned my first, I guess the first of many, many uh, 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 crucial lessons in my life. And that is that when you give up everything and feel like you're going to die, uh, if you hang in, it's a new beginning. And you're, you, 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 uh, you, get a, you get a brand new way of looking at the world. Uh, uh, one of the guys I read a lot is uh, is, a, is a, a Zen Buddhist uh, teacher named Ajashanti, and he has people that come to him on the verge of suicide uh, periodically, and uh, he has a kind of a standard response to them. He said, "Ajay, I, I can't deal it anymore. He said, I can't. I'm going to kill myself." And his and, he, and his response is, "Oh, that's interesting." He says, "Okay, that's good." He said, "What part of you is it that needs to die? What part of you is it that needs to die?" And 
It throws them back, because what they're looking for is sympathy and blah, blah, blah. And what it does is make them look at their life as something bigger than what they think it is. And it always is. I've found that my life, if I, if I allow myself to die over and over and over again, that I find that what ends up is something bigger than I ever, ever imagined it to be. And, and most of the time, not anything like what I hoped it was going to be or thought it was going to be, but something infinitely grander. But it requires allowing yourself to, to die uh, in, uh, in ways that you think... I mean, we've all had that. I don't know anybody who hasn't had the experience. If I do this, I'm going to die. And then you know you have to do it anyway, and you do it, and you don't die, and something miraculous almost invariably happens. How many uh, times do you think you've died over the years? In plays or movies? <laughs> uh, how many times? Uh, or in making difficult life choices? Well, it's, it's tantamount to, yeah. to a death. Well, I, I guess maybe four or five times. Wow. Four or five times. And did Second City lead directly to your work on Broadway? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, we came to New York. Uh, uh, we did a Broadway show that failed uh, after two months. <clears throat> and then, but a guy liked us enough, so he opened a club for us in New York, and we were enormously successful in New York. And then, as a result of that, people in the group started getting a lot of different kinds of work, and I got offered Broadway work from that, and uh, got the two Broadway plays, and then started getting film work from that. But I didn't. I but I remember uh, uh, the period of about eight years when I was auditioning after getting out of college. And my auditions were dreadful for eight years until the only time I did my audition started to get any good was when I stopped caring. Mm. You know, there was, there was a, a kind of a I don't give a damn. I don't care. That, that allowed me to, to relax enough to be to be comfortable with the audition process, and I started getting work as a result of not caring. And the reason I didn't care was because I had Second City to to anchor myself in a, in a in a uh, in something secure. Uh, Do you recall, or would you be willing to share with us your worst audition? My worst audition? <laughs> I, I I don't I don't remember. <laughs> no, I really I really I can't I I, I can't I can't the only I only remember one audition. Uh, I remember a tack I started taking in auditions when I started getting work, uh, but I the only audition I really remember with any kind of sense of. Uh, misery, and I remember Brando talking about the same kind of thing. Was when I my career was in one of the many times it's gone like that, and I had to audition for a one scene part about twelve years ago, after having Academy Award nominations and Tonys and blah blah blah. And it was like a one scene part. And I had to audition for a director in Hollywood. It was a very, felt very humiliating and mm -hmm. embarrassing. Uh, that was not fun. I remember that. I don't know if this qualifies as a bad audition, but didn't you? What? Have, I don't know if this qualifies as a bad audition, but didn't you have a difficult experience with Bonfire of the Vanities? Oh, it ended up being great. Because <laughs> uh, 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 you weren't in it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, an it's a fun story. Uh, somebody sent me the script of Bonfire of the Vanities, which I read and I thought was one of the greatest scripts I'd ever read. It was a spectacular script in a tone that didn't exist much. It does now, but it didn't exist in, uh, in American movies at that time. It was, it was a satire. It was a satire and, uh, and, uh, and a black comedy. There, wasn't, there was no such thing. And it was a brilliant script. And I read the part of the judge, and I said, and this has only happened to me about three times in my life. I said, that's my part. And I called my agent. I said, the part of the judge, that's my part. They said, they don't want you. I said, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I said, it's my part. <laughs> it's, that's rarely happens to me. I usually, I usually feel, well, I, I recommend somebody else. I can think of several other people who would be better uh, most of the time. But I said, I'm sorry. This is my part. They don't want you. They want Burt Lancaster or somebody like that, somebody with some stature. Oh, one of those stature guys. Okay. Uh, I said, but it's, I can't help it. It's my part. I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. They, can I audition? No, they don't want you to audition. Well, I'm going to audition anyway. I'm going to get a friend of mine to 
have me read the entire part and I'm gonna send it in, which I did. I wrote it, I, did, or did, I recorded the entire part, I sent it in and I got the part. And about a week after I got it, uh, the NAACP got a hold of the, uh, the script and felt it was enormously demeaning to black people which it was, but what the NAACP didn't notice was the fact it was demeaning to everybody. It was demeaning to everybody in the script. But the studio got nervous, and in order to placate the NAACP, they, they, they went through the script, and they said, who can we turn into a, a, a positive character that everybody loves? And they found the part of the, the judge. No, the, the judge, they can turn the, we gave the part to Arca. We gotta get rid of him. We gotta somehow get rid of him. So they, they fired me, and they hired Morgan Freeman, and they said we had had creative difficulties. That was the, the official line in, in Variety and, uh, and the Hollywood Report. I never spoken to anybody, so. <laughs> so they fired me, and then the movie came out, and I wasn't in it, but I was the only person in the movie that got good reviews. I was the only person not in the movie that got good reviews. <laughs> Didn't you run into Brian De Palma, the director, oh, after that? I can't tell that story. Okay. <laughs> I can't tell that because no one will believe it. it, it <laughs> no, I can't tell it. No, I, it I, I can't tell <laughs> No, no. After, after, we'll get together afterwards. <laughs> when nobody's got their thing on, I don't end up on YouTube tomorrow morning. <laughs> But it's, it's true, but it, it, uh, it would be embarrassing for him. And even though I don't know him, he may hire me again someday. <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, I don't care if he hires me or not. <laughs> that film is interesting because it, like, I, I read the script as well, and it was a great script. It was a great script. Tom and Wolfe was a brilliant writer. It just, it was like they didn't know what movie they were making. No, the, he, the Palmer didn't have a clue. He didn't know how to make a black comedy. Very few people do. It's a tough pocket to, to fall into. Do you find that ever happens when you, you think you're making one movie to find out it's a completely yeah, different film? It's, it's, it, well, I've, in the past 10 years, I've changed my tack when, when, when I, I'm offered a part. Uh, I think I'm a pretty easy actor to get along with. Uh, but when I'm offered a part, and, and I've done this for about 10, 15 years because I've had experiences that were nightmares, and, and saying yes to a part and then realizing that the director's making one kind of movie and I read an, another kind of movie. So what I, what I do, what I've been doing, for, and I think, I mean, I'm grateful that I have the, the leeway to do this, but uh, it, it saved my butt on a lot of occasions. Well, now I present my worst, most arbitrary side before I start, before I accept the job. Because I want to establish all the rules of, of what kind of movie we're making, how does he see the part, how I have to play. I want to know exactly what the director sees so I'm not making one movie and, and, uh, and he's making another movie. I did a movie about 10 years ago for, I think it was HBO, called uh, 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 Poncho... Uh, Pancho, something oh, starring Pancho Villa as himself? Yeah, starring Pancho Villa as himself, which again was a genius script by Larry... Gelbart. Gal Larry Gelbart, who's a genius comedy writer. The director didn't know it was a comedy. <laughs> he didn't know it was a comedy. And I mean, it's the kind of thing you're embarrassed to ask a director, how do you, is this, did you see this as a comedy? Because I think most directors would say, oh, are we in the same room? But he didn't know it was a comedy. So, I, I, I found, so what I do now is I say, tell me a movie that you want this to be like. And that's an affront to every director. Because every director thinks they're making a movie that's going to be unlike any movie that's ever been made. Which, of course, is crap because it's going to be like something. Uh, and, and when push comes to shove, they'll finally acquiesce and tell me a movie that it's going to be vaguely like, and then I finally say, oh, okay, so you see that it's a black comedy, or it's a satire, or it's, you know, it reads with com comedic lines, but it's very serious, like, for example, Argo. Uh, Argo's got some comedic lines in it, but, but it ain't a comedy. Uh, so, so that when we start shooting, uh, 
the director and I are are in sync. There's, and and I because there's the last thing in the world I can stand, particularly at my age, is a huge surprise on the first day of shooting. <laughs> uh, when uh, when I find out I'm in a different movie than than everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going back to your first movie, which was I think it was 1966. Yeah, the Russians that's what are coming. I hear. The Russians are coming. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it says on the internet anyway. You are one of only six actors to get a best actor Academy Award nomination for their film debut. Uh, this was a film by Norman Jewison, a huge director. How did you go about landing the lead? He saw me on Broadway, well, he seen me in Second City and saw me on Broadway <clears throat> in a play I had the lead in and asked me if I had auditioned. I said, yeah, I'll audition, but I have to improvise it. And he said, fine. So he, did, he and I did an improvisation for my character with him behind the camera and me on camera. And uh, I got the part as a result of that. I got offered, actually, the part that, that Carl Reiner ended up playing, and I didn't want to play that part because at that point in my life, I didn't know how to be anything like me. I, 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 I couldn't do anything remotely like myself. I could only play things that I thought were a million miles away from my own persona. And uh, so that, that part uh, felt more comfortable to me than it would have been playing the, what part Carl ended up doing. Was this your first time like in front of a camera? No, I had done a couple of shorts before that. I did a short that was a... Uh, a scene from Second City that got a, an Academy Award nomination. And I had done a couple of things on television, but it was, it was my first big thing, mm -hmm. uh, certainly. And what's it like? I mean, I have to imagine the Oscars were so different then, uh, but getting a nomination like that for your first movie. Well, I, 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 I didn't know how to categorize it until very recently. And the same thing happened to me that five years ago when I got, uh, when I won for Little Miss Sunshine. I, I just, disappear. I, I, can't, I can't do that. So if somebody else shows up, he looks like me, and he talks a little bit like me, but it's not me, because I, I know, the only reason I know that, because I remember, I, had, I was fine, I got through the whole event fine, but then about two weeks later, I looked at a, at a video of the thing, and I panicked. I said, Jesus, God Almighty, look at the amount of people in that hall, that's a nightmare. And I realized at that moment that I hadn't been there uh, at, at the event. I said, who was there? It wasn't me. There was this kind of a vacant shell. It was inhabited by some other human being. So people asked me what I was like. I said, I don't know. You don't, you don't remember giving your speech? Or? I, yeah, I remember it all, but like from some vague, faraway place. Uh, I had no emotional reaction whatsoever. It's just, it's just too, much to, to, too much to assimilate. It's not real. And I, I, I feel like a hypocrite, too, uh, because I have an enormous ambivalence about the whole award situation, all of them. Uh, I don't believe in competition between artists. I think it's bullshit. Uh, I think it's bullshit. I think it serves the movie, it serves the producers, I think it serves the industry, maybe, but I don't think it serves the artists. I don't think it does anybody, to treat us like horses in a horse race is, is a kind of insanity. I mean, who's going first? Who's in first? I mean, you look in the papers now, it's madness. Who's in first position, who's in second position coming up? What has that got to do with making something? I, I got into this business because I wanted to move people. I cared about moving people because I was moved by movies more than I was about most of what the, what I saw in life around me. I was deeply moved and changed and grew as my school, is where, where I learned. I learned from performances, I learned from movies. I learned about the different cultures of the world from the movies I saw when I was eight, nine, 10 years old. Uh, I, learned, I learned how people from every conceivable culture, every race, every nationality, it's just the same. <laughs> It, just, it makes me cry. There's no difference. You look at people from cultures that seemingly have nothing to do with the way life is here, and the emotional needs are exactly the same in every culture, no matter what the, the external situations are. Everybody needs the same degree of love and care. And, uh, it's like, it, it reminds me of a... Uh, 
I, I was sitting next to a guy uh, in, a, in an airplane once, and we started talking, and he, he, he was a guy on the Facebook by his dress. I didn't think we'd have anything to talk about. I said, what do you do? He said, I work with mortgages for, for a low-income housing. I deal with a, a lot of mortgages, and I work with large groups of people who are trying to uh, affect mortgages for low-income housing. And, and uh, he says, I deal with group, big groups of people. And I says, I, I say, how do you do it? He said, what do you do? He said, well, I sit there in the group, and I, I say, oh, he said, I, I need a show of hands. He says, how many people here pick their parents? A group of 500 people. No, not a lot of people raise their hands. Maybe a couple of, uh, of adopted people. How many people pick their race? Not, not a lot of hands. How many, uh, how many people pick their religion? Maybe half a dozen people. Uh, how many people pick their size? <laughs> how many people pick the color of their hair? No hands. And he said, okay, we all uh, pretty much have everything in common then, don't we? And that was the way the meeting started. Boom, leveled the playing field immediately. I mean, it's... Uh, and, and that's what moves me about films. That's what I care about. I don't give a good goddamn about uh, the high wire acts of stars uh, who, oh look, at, oh, look at this moment. I don't care about people's moments. I want to see human beings on a screen. I want to lose myself in the identity of the character. And I, I don't want to get lost in people's ex exquisite moments. moments. It, it, to me, it, it demeans the, the profession. Uh, I, I didn't mean to make a speech, but I, but I care about it. I mean, that's what I still care. Like, and I realized a long time ago that it never really mattered to me. People, hey, you're great. You're great. Yeah, I loved you. About, oh, that's nice. It never really affected me. But what affected the two or three times, maybe three, four times over my uh, career when people have said, you know, you did something that changed me in some way. Boom, that that moves me. That 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 cares me. That puts me in a puts me for that moment in with a group of actors and performances that have somehow affected a change in my way of seeing the world. And I feel like if we insist on not being not just actors but human beings who act then we can do that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I, feel like, uh, I feel like that gives it importance. I feel like that gives it uh, 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 value and meaning. Um, Maybe that's why you like foreign films so much. Sorry? Maybe that's why you like foreign films so much, because you're seeing actors you don't know you know, from all over the world. I'm seeing less ego, I think, for a lot, a lot, of, a lot of times. Uh, I'm seeing, uh, it seems easier for people out of this culture to get, to just identify with the character and less with the magnificence of their own work. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I did a, uh, uh, there, there's such a, uh, I don't think any culture in the world, I don't think actors in any culture in the world make that kind of money that a lot of actors do in this culture. And I think it changes you. I think if you're making a million dollars, if you come in and say hello, then you've got to feel that hello is some big hello. You can't say hello anymore. <laughs> it's got to be a hello. <laughs> yeah, that was about $400,000 hello, but can you give it another six? Yeah, but I need a big close-up on it. Okay, let's do it. Uh, it changes that, like I was in, I did a movie in Brazil about 12 years ago. And these were the, some of the top actors in Brazil. I was working with the top actors in Brazil who was going to, the next day, be doing a, uh, a, 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 uh, a, a commercial for some woman's product, uh, uh, some woman's hygienic product. They, they, they don't make any money. And that, boom, that gives you a sense of uh, being down to earth that I think we lose to a, lot, to a great extent. Uh, when the stakes are so high, the possibilities are so enormous for not only to be rich, but to never work again for your grandchildren's lifetime. Mm -hmm. 
it does something. I see people most of the time now in that, uh, in that bracket uh, who are no longer actors. They're kind of actors, but they're more like world statesmen. The world, they're making a world uh, statement of some kind. It's, it's, it's subtle, but it's, uh, it's pervasive. And I, I don't know, it's very hard to, to get away from it. Like, I've done a lot of directing over the years. And uh, I've had to say this to act, when, when I'm casting, I've had to say this to actors not once, not a hundred times, but maybe 500 times. An actor will come in and do a reading, and I'll say to them, that was, and I'll do it with people who will look interesting and it ain't working. And I'll say, that was really good, now do it again and take out the acting. I have never once met an actor who didn't know exactly what I meant. Mm -hmm. I see a look of relief. I see a relaxation coming to them. I say, they don't say these words, but I see it in their faces that they say, oh, you want me to do what I came into this profession for? You want me to be the other person? You want me to just relax and have a good time to relate to the other person and not sell? You want me not to sell? I get it. I remember. I remember, I can still do that. Somebody who wants me to... Somebody who wants me to do that? Uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, we live in a, a culture where selling is so pervasive uh, that I, I've had experiences, and I feel like I'm, I'm fairly cynical about it and a nerd to it, but I realize I'm not when I... When I look at somebody's work and I say, there's something wrong with it, and I realize, no, wait a minute, there's something right with it. They ain't selling anything. They're just doing it. Uh, like, my, I have my, an ex-daughter-in-law. I'm sorry she's an ex. She's a wonderful person. She had a talk show on television where she was on a, a show called Alive and Well for several years. And uh, for a long time, I thought she was doing something wrong. And then I realized the thing she was doing wrong was she was really talking to people. Mm. And I said, wait a minute. She's, she's the only person on television that's doing it right. She's doing it right. She's actually where she is and not out in the ratings land. She's not out in the talking to some person that she doesn't know really exists or not. She's talking to the reality that's in, 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 around, in front of her. And right there, I said... And when it was so unusual, I thought it was, she was doing something wrong. Uh, and it's, I do, I do uh, periodically, I do improvisational workshops uh, when I have to, when people nag me enough to, to do it, because it's exhausting. And, and I, find my, I found myself saying initially, I said, I, said, I don't have any agenda. I don't, it has nothing about being funny. I don't care if people are funny or interesting. I said, I want them to be authentic. If you're authentic, you're going to be interesting. Period. Period. If you're authentic, you're going to be interesting. Period. And I, I, and I, say to myself, I said to myself for a long time, I said, what right do I have to decide when somebody's being authentic or not? And, and I said on the face of it, I don't really have any right to do that. And I said, but wait a minute, there's something in me that feels like I know when it's authentic and when it's not. And I said, how do I know? I said, my ass knows. <laughs> how does my ass know when it's authentic and how it's not? I said, because when it's not authentic, it can be funny, it can be blah, 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 it can be interesting, but my, I'm sitting like this. When it's authentic, when it's an event, I may not do this literally, but something in me is moving to be inside the event. And one of the things, the workshop, I try to get people to remember, not know, because everybody knows it, but in this culture, we forget it. And is that, that is the difference between being authentic and not authentic, when you're engaged, when you're not engaged. You don't have any trouble watching a heavyweight prize fight being engaged. But it's the same with acting, too. When two people are really engaged, uh, you know it and you can feel it, and. Uh, you're not talking about or watching how good the performances are. You're in it. You're in the event. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was asking where you keep your Oscar. I, I'm sorry. 
I think I went on for about an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> Um, actually, I want to talk about Argo because uh, they're going to be screening this uh, in about 20 minutes um, before I get to audience questions. But um, this, this is such an amazing ensemble, such a fantastic film. Uh, didn't you direct a film called... What? Uh, didn't you direct a film called Arigo? No, I wanted to. I, I oh, tried to get, get it made. done for 25 years and I couldn't get You're it done. Kidding. What's it about? It's the true story of a psychic surgeon in, in, from Brazil... Uh, it's one of the mind-boggling stories I've ever come across, and I've seen f actual footage done by a team of American doctors of this guy who performed operations on with a knife. He'd pull out of his pocket, wipe on his shirt, and he'd cut out tumors from in behind people's eyes, from the tops of their heads. And I started researching the story, and it was the most uh, a mind-boggling story I'd ever encountered, and I researched and researched, finally ended up writing a, uh, a film about it with my wife, and we tried to get it done, that could never get it done. Is it still a passion project you'd like to do? No, or? no, 25 years is all I can devote to any project. <laughs> After 25 years, I say, it wasn't meant to be. So instead of Arigo, you have Argo. Yeah, it's close <laughs> enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, playing a producer, in this film, I'm sure people have to keep asking you if you based him on anyone. Uh, but he is a, he is an amalgam of characters, is he not? Well, that, well, they told me they they lied to me. <laughs> the bastards lied to me. They told me it was <laughs> they told me it was based on a real guy, and then I researched the real guy, and it had the character I was playing had nothing to do with the real guy. And then they finally confessed that it was based on four guys. So I was playing four different people. So if you think that's easy, try doing it sometime. <laughs> I had to play four people simultaneously. It's like, it's like being a string quartet all at once. It was very, very I'm kidding. Uh, I based him basically on, it's since nobody knew who he was, I just based him loosely on, loosely on Jack Warner. I did very loosely, because I'd met Jack Warner five, for five minutes, but he, whoa, he made a very big impression. I imagine you probably didn't have to do much, re much research to play a Hollywood producer. I met a couple. <laughs> Did you get to read the, the script to the sci-fi film, Argo, that, that No, I don't made? know if there was one. I, well, I guess there was one. No, but the, well, what's in this film of it is, is enough to let you know that you don't need to read anymore. <laughs> This is an amazing ensemble. I mean, yeah, every single role. It's, it's an extraordinary cast. Uh, and you have such great chemistry with John Goodman. Had you met him before? I've never met him before, but the minute I met him, I felt like I'd known him for 50 years. Yeah, I, 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 we got along very well. Uh, it was very, very easy and, uh, and joyous working with him. And what's Ben Affleck like as a director? Meticulous. He's very meticulous. He knows exactly what he wants. I, I think I'm, I don't, I, I don't know if I'd use the word meticulous, but I'm, I, I know when I'm, I think I know when I'm doing a good take when I'm off. Uh, and he wanted more than, than I was comfortable with, invariably. Uh, I, I, very often I would be comfortable with something, be happy to leave it, but he wanted me to keep going. Uh, and he was meticulous. Not hard to work with. Easy to work with, very understanding, but uh, uh, very warm, uh, but meticulous. Mm -hmm. uh, I In a good way. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Um, I do want to take some questions from the audience. Um, and as I always say, forgive me if I butcher your name. Um, uh, Elizabeth Sung uh, wants to know, what's the most challenging role you've had to date? The ch most challenging role I've had today? Oh, God. Uh, I've had to do a lot of foreign, real foreign languages over the years, and that's always been murder. Uh, acting in another language, uh, that's always very hard. Uh, I, I guess I would say the times I've had to do that was probably the most challenging times. Oh, it was hard. Uh, I, I, I had a murderously painful time being mean to Audrey Hepburn. Uh, I did a movie called uh, Wait Until Dark a long time. I, it's the only heavy I ever did. And I just, I, I, I was so 
taken with her. She was such a, a she was just, I mean, what, what you imagine her to be like, that's exactly what she was like. She was genuine, she was incredibly game, she was warm, funny, intelligent, uh, very present, uh, and, uh, and just wonderful. I hated being lousy to her, I just hated it. I was depressed for three months. <laughs> uh, but you were so good at it. Uh, maybe the depression helped. <laughs> Yeah. Out of curiosity, did you see when they revived it on Broadway a few years ago? Uh, I didn't really need to see Tarantino act. I heard Peter Yustinov say something about something that, that uh, Merv Griffith was taking a tour on television of a... A, a, a open bus tour of London, and he pointed out to Peter Houston off a McDonald's. He said, oh, look, Peter, in a McDonald's. Have you eaten at that McDonald's? It's the first one in London, isn't it? And Houston off said, no, he said, no, that's one pleasure I have denied myself. <laughs> and I, I, it's kind of, that's kind of the way I felt about that. <laughs> I apologize for... I, I can't... Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, we have a question from Josh. Wants to know, oh, how significant is your improvising in general? Um, and how do your Second City experiences feed into your work today? Well, one of the... I, I, it's, it's immeasurable. Uh, in so many ways that I can't even... Uh, uh, I can't even talk about... The, the ones that come to mind, though, are first of all, uh, it was a place we were allowed to fail. That the audiences came to the, to the, a lot of University of Chicago people, a lot of students, a lot of professors. They came knowing that 30, 40% of what they'd see in any given night would not work. And they didn't care. We didn't get judged for it, they didn't hate us. They thought, well, the next thing's going to be great. This will be terrible, and the next thing's going to be great. And you don't learn anything unless you fail, unless you allow yourself to fail doing it. And we failed miserably every night part of the, part of the time. And it was a glorious uh, learning experience. On top of that, we played 20 or 30 characters a night sometimes. We'd do operas, we'd do pantomime, we'd do dances, we'd sing songs, we'd play musical instruments, uh, we did political satires, we did everything you can imagine. We did an opera. We did a real opera with gibberish words, but it was a real opera. Uh, a beautifully composed Mozart opera with gibberish words, about a 25-minute opera. Beautiful. Uh, we did a whole full-length, uh, updated version of uh, 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 the Three Penny Opera, uh, which was a glorious experience. Uh, so that was—you're not allowed to fail anywhere anymore. Failure now has become synonymous with being a bad person. It's now become a moral uh, pr problem, and I attribute that to the fact that the the. Uh, the pencil pushes have taken over everything. You know, they look at the bottom line, you're failure, no good, you're bad. But if you don't, if you don't fail, you don't grow. That was one thing, the fact, the fact that we played 30 characters a night was another. The fact that we changed the shows every three months was another. Uh, and, and it also showed me not the lack of importance of a script, but the relative importance of a script. And there's a big difference. I don't mean to negate the deep importance of a, of a, of a clearly delineated story and a script, but we used to sometimes do transcripts of some of our best scenes, scenes that would on occasion get standing ovations, and we'd look at it and it looked like gibberish. It would look like nonsense crap. And I realized the fact, and what it made me realize was you can take stuff that doesn't necessarily have an, an integrity, and if you work hard enough at it, you, and, and you internalize it enough and make it specific enough, you can give almost anything a life. You gotta work, but you can give almost anything a life. And uh, that was a great lesson. The other thing that it taught me was how to help make, like now, uh, and for a long time, 
when a scene doesn't work or when I, when I do three or four or five, six, seven takes of something, then I start playing with it a little bit, always internally so that it doesn't affect adversely what another... I'll ne I'd never do something that would put another actor into shock. I, I would rather die than do that. But I can, I, if I know a character well enough, I, wanna, I feel like I'm in tune enough as a result of my improvisational training to play, to start playing with it. It happened... Uh, it didn't happen with Argo at all. Uh, maybe there's a line, uh, but not the line. No, no, okay. that was <laughs> that was in the script. That was endemic okay. to the script. Uh, it's crucial to the script. Yeah. In fact. Uh, but and now when I was directing it, it it it, uh, it was invaluable too. When actors don't understand a scene, we we'd improvise. Uh, a, a paraphrase of it, and and I'd never had an experience with through a paraphrase. Actors didn't say, "Oh, I get it now." Do you feel like you're scrambling at times? No. Good. <laughs> uh, that's very recent, though. Uh, really. I, I I just have reached a point. It has nothing to do with my age, really. Where I, I don't need to act. I don't feel like I need emotionally. I don't need uh, emotionally. I don't need to act anymore. The first. 45 or so years of my life, if I didn't act, I wanted to die. It was the reason for my existence. But the pendulum started going from that over here, slowly, 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 with a lot of hard work, to the point now where acting is, is an expression of my life and no longer the reason. It's no longer the reason for my life. It's, it's just simply an, an expression of who I am. Uh, and it, as a result, it's become fun, and uh, and most of the time joyous, and and uh, and and much less of, of a torment than it was, because <laughs> when it's the reason for your life, there's no way of it being fun. There's no way for it to be a good time, unless by some miracle. You you have those one of those rare moments where you're out of your body and the part is playing you, uh, which which happens once in a while if you're if you're lucky. Well, I'm so glad you're enjoying it because we so enjoy watching you. Oh, thank thank you, you so much for coming here tonight. Oh, thanks, Brenda. And thank you guys for being a great audience. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at SAGAFTERFound. We'd love to hear from you.